Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, with Pastor John King. Thanks, Pastor John. For the, hey, who's coming out to the parade? Oh, okay. Just a few of you, I see. Um, well, at least come out and watch. You know, if the weather's nice, it's supposed to be a little bit warmer. If you do decide to come out to the parade and you want to ride on the float with us, uh, it's a lot of fun. The actual location is behind the armory, you know, Elizabeth City Armory. Back in that area, that's where all the floats uh, stage. And uh, come on, I just want to encourage you again. Uh, come on out and join us for that this Saturday. Okay, so today we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3. We start a new chapter in Daniel. We'll be in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 today. Um, Real quickly, last week in Daniel's dream interpretation, we saw the climax of what's known as the times of the Gentiles. We saw that they would come to an end and there'd be an establishment of a fifth and final kingdom to be set up by none other than the God of heaven, which shall never be destroyed. We learned that this kingdom would not be passed along for a next generation. In other words, you know, God's not going to allow man to continue to spin his wheels trying to get things right. Uh, I think a lot of us notice that uh, as long as we've uh, been living on this earth. Uh, 2,600 years ago, this was prophesied, and I, I feel like it's certainly coming uh, much closer. But, uh, you know, this, this isn't going to be some, some uh, kingdom that God's going to set up so that man can then take it back and, and try to do it right. Um, not going to be able to use political schemes or oppressive military regimes. You're not going to have uh, be able to lure people with propaganda or empty promises. That's the way of man. That's the way governments work. Sometimes they violently overtake. Sometimes they use fair and or uh, excuse me, free elections. Um, and that's how things happen. That's how change happens. But that's not going to be the case when the Lord Jesus rules this earth. In fact, the coming kingdom of God is going to be as a stone that crushes any idea or system that seeks to displace the God of the Bible and put Satan's kingdom on the throne of the hearts of men. That's going to be it. Now, we learned in a, in a, last week in a parallel scripture, which is in Revelation 20, that our Lord and King Jesus Christ will judge the nations when he comes back. He will bind up Satan, and he will rule the entire world with a rod of iron for a thousand years. At the end of this millennium, Satan will be released for a short while, and he will lead a rebellion of those who have not truly surrendered their lives to God, those who were faking it. They were, they were giving feigned obedience. And they will now choose to be deceived by the enemy and make war against God, but then they'll be swiftly defeated and unfortunately delivered to the final judgment, the great white throne judgment. And so the Bible spells things out how they're going to go, and Daniel sets the stage for that. He, he opens up for us the ability to see the future and part of God's plan. So now this week, we, we start a whole new chapter with one of the most famous Bible stories ever recorded. You guys are familiar. Daniel's three companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, will quite literally face a trial by fire. King Nebuchadnezzar has previously acknowledged that Daniel's God is the God of gods, is the Lord of kings, and is a revealer of secrets. But King Nebuchadnezzar has yet to come to the personal recognition that God Almighty, the God of the Bible, does not simply occupy a space alongside, even though he may be considered the greatest of gods, he doesn't sit alongside these so-called gods. And we'll see in chapter 4 that he will re he'll realize that very quickly. Now we see today that the king has decided that he's going to use his vast power now. Obviously he didn't hear what Daniel had prophesied. And he's going to use his vast power to try and change the course of history by attempting to make his kingdom the only kingdom that will last. He doesn't like the idea of an inferior kingdom taking over. So as we read our text, we're in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 this morning. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and a width of 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. 
And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And we'll continue our reading after we pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask, Lord, that you would now go before us, that you would give us an open mind and a humble heart before you, unlike the example we see in this King Nebuchadnezzar. Let us be teachable by you, Lord. Let your Holy Spirit work in the minds and the hearts of each one of us, Lord. Let your Holy Spirit speak through your word this morning to us and not my words. Let us humble our hearts now as we come before you. We thank you, Lord, for this great opportunity once again to be together with you as we go through the word of God. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Okay, so we start out in the first part of, the, of our study with the, with the image of gold. And we notice in verse 1, it says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and his width was 6 cubits. It was most likely not pure gold. He wouldn't have likely been able to afford something that large to be made out of pure gold. It would be extremely heavy as well. But we know that the dream that he had has obviously gone to his head. Remember, he had a dream of this great image that had a golden head, silver arms, uh, uh, bronze chest and thighs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And so he's, he's got it in his mind that he's going to have this image built. And he has the power to do that. If you look at Isaiah 40, 19, you'll notice um, just how metalsmith works in ancient times, metalsmithery. Isaiah says, the workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. So that was, a, you know, that was something that was common back then. So most likely this is a gold-plated 60 cubic feet. Now, how, or excuse me, 60 cubits. How tall is that? Well, that's anywhere from 90 to over 100 feet tall and nine feet wide. So it's almost as tall as the nine-story Virginia Dare building right here in downtown Elizabeth City. Uh, it's considered to be a low-rise building. Now, you kind of wonder, okay, that's pretty tall and pretty thin. It's pretty slender. And so uh, a lot of people would say, well, perhaps it's, the body is more proportional because it sits on a big pedestal as well, and that includes the total height. So he set it up on the plain of Dura, which is in the province of Babylon. Uh, now, uh, one reading is this. There's a circle. The plain near Babylon in which Nebuchadnezzar set up an ancient or set up a golden image mentioned in Daniel 3.1, this place still retains archaeological evidence. It still retains its ancient name, and on one of the many mounds, the pedestal of what must have been a colossal statue has been found. And so, you know, again, the Bible, you know, archaeological evidence continues through the t course of time uh, as, we, as we move into, through history. Archaeological evidence continues to point to the accuracy of the Bible and the truth of Scripture. One writer put it this way. He said, the date of this event, in other words, here we shifted from this, this great prophecy, uh, this great uh, look to the future here into chapter 3, and you kind of wonder, well, how much time went by between this great prophecy that Daniel, having interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar and the present place we're at right now, when the date is not given, and the scholars differ in their opinion, says one writer, some suggest a date soon after Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the enormous statue described in chapter 2. You know, you have something in your head and you can't get it out of your head, uh, you, you know, it could have been last night. There was something that was bothering you, <laughs> whether it was getting your house decorated for Christmas, whatever it was, and it just wouldn't go away. Um, now, other scholars suggest a later date of some 20 or more years, and this seems to make more sense because that would have given Nebuchadnezzar time to have destroyed Jerusalem totally. That would have given him time to invade and, and conquer Egypt. That would have given him uh, time to complete his 13-year siege of the conquest of, of Tyre. Um, 
And so he, he would have seen all these things when he went out. When he went to Egypt, he would have seen these giant statues. He would have seen the, the pyramids, the sphinxes, the temples that uh, these great uh, Egyptian kings had built. So chances are, obviously, we're going to see that uh, this, this powerful man is also full of pride. Nebuchadnezzar had a strong desire to build a monument in his own honor and a monument that could be used to consolidate his power and unify the nation. So here he is, and what does he do in verse 2? He says, he sends word to gather together, and then we have that list of people, the government officials, you know, the satraps, the administrators, etc., etc. You see, this king's empire stretched all the way from Egypt all the way over to, from Egypt all the way over to Babylon and north. And so there were a lot of different people that were originally part of different states and countries, and they had a lot of you know, diversity, if you will. And so you see at this, this long list, and, and it also gets listed again later, but they came for the dedication of the image. Apparently the invitation included what they were going to be doing. And you think, oh, we're going to go clear over to Babylon and the plain of Dur. We're going to get out in the desert and we're going to look at this big giant statue. Who does that today? Well, you ever heard of the Burning Man Festival? Some of you have. It takes place in northern uh, Nevada in the middle of the desert. I think they had to cancel for COVID. But they put big giant statues up there that are 100 feet tall and then they burn them in effigy. They do all kinds of crazy stuff. So people still do those kind of things. Um, but in any event, this was a, a pagan set of countries. This was various pagan religions. And for them, it, al it almost wouldn't be a big deal to do this. But of course... This was an absolute monarch, and when he says to come visit us, when he says to come out, you'll do that. And so they came for the dedication. The word is, uh, the, the Aramaic word is Hanukkah, corresponding to the Hebrew word for consecration. Now later, the Jews uh, in 164 BC would establish the Jewish festival of lights, or dedication, which we know today as Hanukkah. Hanukkah. So the image was, uh, you know, really tall. You know, again, it was the size of uh, a low-rise building, 100 feet tall or so. And it says in verse 3, so they all came, the satraps, the administrators, governors, etc. They came and they stood before Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, so now we're all here. It took us some, in some cases, it may have taken several weeks to get here. We're all here out in the desert in the plains of Dura. Now what? <laughs> we're here for the dedication. Now what? Well, stand by. Oh, and by the way, what's that big furnace over there? Why is that furnace so close to that really tall golden statue? What are we doing here? You, know? you ever been in a group situation like, okay, we're all assembled. What are we doing here? I know you're not saying that here today. I'm going to tell you. So we start and we go into verses 4 through 7. We come to the sound of music. You know, you got to have music, right? you got to have music for an event like this. And so here we have, he starts out and you have a herald crying aloud. And he says in verse 4, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Here's a proclamation. These were representative of many regions. It is commanded, not suggested, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyra, and psaltery, all together in symphony, with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. That's what you came here to do. That's where you came thousands, you know, hundreds of miles, you know, all, your, you know, all these people. You've come out to the desert, now you're standing before this great image, and when the music plays you will bow down and you will worship the image. We look at this list of, of, of music, musical instruments, kind of interesting. You have a horn, which is quite possibly like a shofar. You have a flute, which is, uh, would be, again, like a pipe whistle. A harp, which is probably a lyre, a stringed instrument. Not a lyre, but a lyra or zither. A psaltery would be a 12-string harp, a dulcimer. I like music, so I like instruments. You know, you see, musical instruments all together. So what they were doing would have been a loud and expressive display of instrumental music. So here you're in this situation. 
It says, you shall fall down. Uh, the NIV, NIV says, you must fall down and worship. To worship the gold image is to be laying flat down on the ground, to bow low, not to have your head popped up. Worship the gold image. In verse 6 it says, But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Now they understand why the furnace is so close to the, to the uh, figure. So they've made it a matter of life and death. Your obedience to this crazy, uh, mad empire, emperor, your obedience has now been made a matter of life or death. He says, now that I've got you here, I'm going to test your allegiance. And if you fail the test, you will be burned to death. I mean, <laughs> these people don't play around, okay? <laughs> this, is, this is, you have seen this. We have seen this through our recent history in the world. Now, we, we act like we're oppressed in America, and I do believe the government overreaches many, many ways currently, many ways. But you want to talk about government overreach? Well, here you have it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, one writer put it this way, Nebuchadnezzar planned to unify his kingdom by means of religion and fear. He was going to use religion and fear. The alternatives were to fall down before the image and worship or be thrown into the furnace and be burned to death. David Guzik writes, he says, In this, Nebuchadnezzar was just like many politicians who often seem willing to use religion to strengthen their grip on political power. Politicians are happy to blend together spiritual allegiance and national allegiance. An example of this was displayed in 1936 when Herr Baldar von Schirach, head of the youth program for Nazi Germany, said the following, quote, if we act as true Germans, we act according to the laws of God. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer, serves Germany, and whoever serves Germany serves God. End quote. So political power, you know, we don't have to look very far in our past to see how it was used and blended. And so sure enough, in verse 7, at the time when the people heard the sound, right on cue, there was no dress rehearsal. <laughs> can we try that again? Can, stop the music. <laughs> can, hey, can we back up? Uh, can you just play that first part? For, no, 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 no. All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This diverse group of leaders submitted with total and immediate obedience to Nebuchadnezzar's command. And again, we said they were being influenced in two ways the allure of great music, or the terrifying prospect of a fiery furnace. When we study prophecy, especially when we study the book of Revelation, we see in Revelation 13 what's coming. A future world leader, the false prophet, or also known as the beast from the earth, not the Antichrist, but the false religious prophet, Demanding worship of Antichrist. Telling people they will worship Antichrist or they will die. You see it. Revelation 13, 15 through 7. He was granted great power or granted power to give breath to the image of the beast and that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or name of the beast or the number of his name. In Revelation 17, we'll see that a future Babylon, notice the parallels, a future Babylon, that the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon, the Great, the Mother of Harlots and the Abominations of the Earth. So this technique of total submission or die has happened in recent history in the world. 
still happens to this day in some places around the world, will happen on a grand and global scale in the coming tribulation. So you don't want to be there. You don't, you don't want to be in the tribulation. You don't want to say, oh, I'll accept Jesus, you know, just as I get a sense that things are really coming to an end, I will finally give my life to Jesus so that I don't have to endure the tribulation. No, you don't want to wait. Talking about propaganda again, looking back a little bit into our past, uh, last century, you had what was known, some of you are familiar with the Nuremberg rallies. Uh, in September 1934, the National Socialists have been in power for about a year and a half, and once again, Nuremberg serves as the arena in which to display their power. And there was a, a famous documentary, a famous, what's known as the, some of the best, one of the most uh, effective forms of propaganda ever made. It was called The Triumph of the Will. You can see it on the internet. A lot of people have... Uh, pages on it. They like to talk about it. There's a lot of uh, uh, YouTube pages. This was a, uh, a documentary done by a woman named Lenny Reffenstahl. And when she did this, what she did was she chronicled uh, uh, through cinema, through the use of cameras, what these rallies, these Nazi rallies were. And they took place for several years leading up to the beginning of World War II. And they would set up these massive stadiums and they would have, the last one, I think they had close to a million people assembled. And everything was in grand and large scale. And you've, you've seen it. You've seen Hitler, you know, the, the, the armies and the tanks. And then you see Hitler, and he's the main, the main stage. And what they do is they, they, uh, they take this documentary and they show it to the German public. During, prior to World War II, in 1935, they started showing it in local theaters to get everybody on board, to get this entire nation to jump into this madness known as Nazism. And uh, what they would do, uh, it was honored, it got many, many uh, prizes. But if you'll note, today in Germany, if, if you're in Germany today, public screening of this triumph of the will is prohibited. But many cinematographers regard it as the best propaganda film of all times. You may have heard of a man in the Nazi party. His name was Albert Speer. And he was, uh, he was an uh, 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 architect that worked for Hitler. And he designed and built gigantic structures exclusively for the rally. So when you see what goes on with this thing with Nebuchadnezzar, big, giant, grand, what they're doing is they're playing off the human desire to like big and grand things and to be, be drawn to it. And so he built these gigantic structures. And in his autobiography, Spear calls the chapter pertaining to these party meetings, uh, it's translated over to constructed megalomania. In other words, he builds these ginormous uh, stands where you can house all these people, these spotlights that go straight up in the air. They look like an actual curtain. And so they've constructed this megalomania. And so the problem, and the reason why it's so easy, because you want to ask yourself the question, why would people do this? Why would they go worship a statue? But we know in our modern world, I mean, think of all the big cities you may have been to and the, and the great sights and sounds you see in these big cities. People are, are enamored with large, beautiful architectural things. And so it's easy. But we also see not only was this, this propaganda going on, and remember, propaganda is, right now, is very extensive on the internet. It's very extensive in social media. If they continue to repeat lies enough, everyone starts to believe it. And so, folks, we need to be careful how we deal and be able to recognize propaganda. Because that's part of what's dividing our nation right now. From two separate groups is this crazy propaganda because they keep just hammering us with it. We also had the fact that he was using music, and I'm not going to go into that, but why would he gather all these various leaders? And the reason was, again, he had this vast empire, so he had to have everybody, he wanted to get them all on the same page. He's kind of like, I wonder what's going on way over in Egypt. I don't know how things are going. So there was a need to bring everyone together and rally around a common cause. They had, to, they had a, a need to unify. 
And then why would, a, why would they use a statue? Well, we just said it. Why, you know, the reason why big and beautiful things are attractive is because that's what draws people. They will come to that. They will acknowledge those things. Big Ben in London or the towers you know, in New York City or you know, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And all the cities around the world have their iconic figures. And why do, why do people worship idols? I mean, we see through the, here, we see the golden calf back in, in uh, uh, Exodus, various idols and images from different people groups. And that's because of our sinful nature. Our sinful nature. And it starts with idolatry. When Adam and Eve gave into the temptation of trusting the words of the serpent over the words of God and his provision for them, it set in motion a heart of rebellion in all of us to want to construct our own idols in the place of God. And when God gave the Ten Commandments, he knew about this fallen tendency, and so he instructed Moses and the Israelites in this very thing. You've seen it in Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So, knowing Scripture, knowing our tendency, knowing the fall, the, the type of you can you can easily answer the question why people would do that and why this pagan culture would do it. Romans one twenty three summarizes. It says, "People and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men." and birds, and forfeited animals, and creeping things. So idolatry, and in the case of King Nebuchadnezzar, and, and everyone for that matter, leads to pride. Idolatry leads to pride. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he heard the dream interpretation, but it appears he didn't relish the idea that this great kingdom of gold would be handed over to a lesser, inferior kingdom of silver. This is where he decides that he's going to you know, even though that's exactly what would happen in 70 years, by the way, as we will learn. But at the time, no one, no one on earth at that time would have thought that this great Babylonian empire would fall. But it did. It was defeated because of pride. And that's what takes down nations. Again, we, we looked at prophecy last week. We saw that there's coming a time when God is just going to say, no more, no more. I'm going to set up a kingdom. I'm going to show you how it is to govern this earth, this creation that I made. So from a distance, and with the benefit for you and I of this sort of biblical hindsight, we can see the folly of the king and his subjects. If I were to ask any of you, hey, is it a good idea to run out to a desert and worship and bow down to a golden idol? You'd say, of course not. Because you're Christian, you have, you know, you have your faith, and you have biblical hindsight to see the folly of it. We looked at the even closer historical event of the Nazis who subjugated the German people through propaganda and violence. And we hardly need a reminder that our generation today faces its own challenges. And we need God's promises to see us through in our day and time. No, no political party, no leader, no switching from Democrat to Republican, going from you know, blue to red or whatever, that is not going to solve the problems ultimately. Ultimately. We need God's promises to see us through each and every day. John 12, 24, verses 24 and 26. Jesus said to this, to his disciples, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Which brings us to our final verses for today. Verses 8 through 12. Here we see Daniel's companions refusing to serve or worship the image. Verse 8, it says, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. 
Now these Chaldeans came forward. These guys had political reasons for coming against Daniel's uh, men. And, and they, they knew that Nebuchadnezzar had already placed these young men in high, positions of high authority and high office above many of these Chaldeans and astrologers and other people that were previously uh, consulting with the king. And he accused the Jews. Now that word accused in Aramaic means literally to chew them up. It's a figure of speech referring to slander. Psalm 52.2 says, Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. And man, we can do it, can't we? I mean, James said, you know, the tongue can, can the size of a rudder on a large ship can turn in all different directions. The tongue is, is destructive like a fire. And we can, we can literally chew others up with our tongues. We can destroy people. That's the power of the tongue when it's used improperly. And so here they were coming after him. Now you might say at this point, where's Daniel? Why, isn't, why is it just, you know, uh, these three young men? And, and some scholars think that he was either away on business, didn't get the word somehow, or even possibly he's too high up the chain. He's too close to King Nebuchadnezzar to be called out publicly like this. We don't know. But they came, these men, these Chaldeans, and they accused the Jews, and they spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Oh, king, live forever. Now, we know this is a very respectful salutation. Whenever you wish somebody long life, if you want to get on their good side, that's what you'll say to them. Oh, king, live forever. Very respectful. I've never had anybody say that to me. <laughs> so, just like Rodney Dangerfield. I don't think anybody ever said it to him either. So. Uh, but in verse 10, he says, you, O king, they say, you, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound, a decree, shall fall down and worship the gold image. So, you know, they're reminding the king of what he's done. You know, this is an absolute monarch and what he says goes. He doesn't even have to repeat himself. He can make a command, it'll get written down and it'll be told to the people. That's how it works. It wasn't like, are you, are you sure you want to do this, King? No, he, he, could, he can decree whatever he wants and won't have to repeat himself. So they repeat it back to him. And it says, they remind him, of course, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furs. So they, here they are. Now this furnace, uh, atun, a large furnace with a very wide open mouth so it could fit like human bodies in it, <laughs> at the top of which materials were cast in. This furnace would be a constant requisition. It would be constantly being used, even though this one was set up out in the plain. It was kind of set up special for this event. But it was, it was uh, something that was very common in culture back then. Not only was it used for uh, destruction of people and torture of people, but it was also used because the Babylonians disposed of their dead by cremation. You know, the Jews would never cremate a body. And so here they were in Babylon and you know, another part of culture they're learning about. But that's how they dispose of their dead, by cremation. And then they go on in verse 12 and they say, Well, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. So they're accusing them. And this, uh, some would say that this was a sort of a, a, a malicious sort of a spirit of anti-Semitism. Uh, and when you look at the history, uh, look, look at the Nazi regime, you go, wow, that's crazy. And then you look in the book of Revelation and, and uh, you see the Great Tribulation. Who's being persecuted? The Jews. God's people. Filled their hearts. You know, this malicious anti-Semitism had filled their hearts, the minds of their advisors. The three young men had just betrayed Babylon, is what they're saying. And so they reminded the king of his decree and anyone who refused to worship before the gold statue and declare his first loyalty to the state, was to be executed. And so they were going to be thrown into a burning furnace. And they, here's what they told the king. They said, they do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. They don't do what everybody else has done without even being asked twice. So this was a charge of treason. These Chaldeans intended to make this a personal affront to the king. You know, how could they be so ungrateful, king, for all the things that you have done for them? You've raised them up in this position. Uh, they don't serve your gods. They don't even serve, not only will they not serve this golden image, 
but they won't serve any of your gods. They won't worship them. So not only had they failed to obey the king's decree, but they had actually, they're trying to paint this picture that they were being malicious about it. That they were in contempt of him and his authority. Just trying to stir him up. And as we, as we start next week, we'll see that he, had, he was very mad. <laughs> he was very upset about this. Because Nebuchadnezzar had set up, he'd set up a new state religion. Yet Daniel's three friends took their stand and they would not bow down or worship. They would be accused of being narrow-minded. After all, everyone was doing it. So as we come to the end of the message today, some thoughts come to mind. Things we could probably uh, most likely put to use in our own walk. We don't live in a time like that, obviously. Who knows what could happen in the future? We don't know. And so how are you going to deal with it? In advance, how are you going to deal with persecution if it were to happen? We don't know. Things, we see the world moving so fast now, it's never moved that fast. Because of the digital age, and I'm not trying to make you guys all hyped up and, and, and try to get you all upset so when you go home you can't sleep this afternoon. I don't think that's possible. I sleep good on Sunday afternoons. I'm sure you do too. But in any event, I'm not trying to hype you up. I just want to say you know, what you already know, that this world is changing rapidly. It's rapidly changing. They either had to disobey the Lord or disobey the king. That was their, their choice. And their decision was a matter of life and death. You either turn or burn. But you know what? These young men knew God's word and they knew God's promises. You know, you can look at the world at large, but you guys know God's word. You guys know God's promises. Isaiah 43, 1 and 2, this was a promise they would have remembered. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Nor shall the flame scorch you. That's a promise from God. You guys know this story so well, I don't have to tell you what comes next. We're not going to cover it today. Also, it was easy for these other officials of Babylon to, to declare their first loyalty to the state, for the crowd believed in many gods. The, the image representing the state of Babylon was merely another god to be added to the others' worship throughout the empire. When you look at our society and those who are not Christians, and we're, again, we're in a post-Christian era, it used to be the majority of Americans would call themselves Christians. It's no longer that way. And you look at people and you say, well, how can they be so ignorant? Look, it's not, it's not strange for them to want to worship the things of this world. It's not strange at all. Because they already believe in many gods. They have many idols already. And many of us still have problems with that from our old life. Many of us can be very idolatrous as Christians because we live in a land of plenty. We live in this, this great land that's, you know, got everything you want. So it's easy. So we need to have a tender heart before we show judgment towards people and wonder why they do the things they do. But not to Daniel's three friends. They believed in the Lord, the only living and true God revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And that's what should set us apart. They knew him in a very personal way. And they loved the Lord. Furthermore, they knew the word of God and then what God demanded of them. And they knew that the Lord is the only living and true God and then he commands them to love him with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. And the same for us. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. One writer put it this way. True faith isn't frightened by threats. It's not impressed by crowds or swayed by superstitious ceremonies. True faith obeys the Lord 
and trust him to work out the consequences. So how do you respond? Friends, how do you respond when your faith is tested by circumstances that are outside of your control? And many of you, I know, I know many stories, I know what's going on with many of you. The unexpected loss of a loved one, the threat of losing employment, a fire that destroys your home. One thing we know, folks, is that when our faith is tested, we must continue to trust the Lord no matter how strong the temptation to deny Him. We are to continue to believe and trust in Him. Faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us. The circumstances around us or the consequences before us, says one writer. Oftentimes I'll, I'll, I'll try to catch myself in conversation because it's very popular now to express ourselves in a simple, this is a simple thing. I feel like this. I feel like this is going on and then go off into some real deep thing or maybe some trivia thing. And I, I try to catch myself because I realize and I recognize that I cannot trust my feelings. And so if I'm going to express something of, of God's wisdom and God's importance, maybe I shouldn't say I, I feel like. Maybe I should say, you know what, I know. I know that I know that I know that God's word is true. And I'm not trying to be prideful because I do it all the time. I feel like this. I feel like that. It's sort of a trendy thing. But we trust the Lord despite the circumstances around us or the consequences before us. When we seek God and ask Him to fill us with His Holy Spirit for service to Him, which we do, we want to do it all the time. We want to gather. We want to spend time in the prayer closet. Say, Lord, I'm going to go out and be among your people. I'm going to be in this world. I'm going to you know, teach your word. I'm going to witness to others. Fill me with your Holy Spirit for service to you. We should also ask for strength to trust him as well. Help our unbelief, Lord. Help our unbelief. And just as we might know in advance how we would deal with various temptations, things that can ensnare us and cause us to fall to sin, how we're going to deal with uh, how we... Uh, look at other people of the opposite sex or how we have conversations with others that could f find us in a temptation, temptating, tempting position. We should know in advance how we're going to deal with that. We also ought to pray how it would come to pass in our lifetime if we were to face persecution of this level. How are we going to deal with it? We should pray and ask that we be prepared because these young men were prepared. This, you know, they may have known that this word had gone out to this great, uh, vast empire, that these people were coming and they were going to have a dedication. And they may have known, we don't know, we don't know if they knew what was going to take place. But when they were placed in that situation, worship the idol or die, they stood and they were willing to die. So we should know in advance how we're going to handle it. You say, well, I don't know how I'm going to handle it. The power of the Holy Spirit. God, the, the Holy Spirit, God the Father promises us that he will give us the words to speak. He will tell us how to react. But we should know in our mind how we would do it. We talk about trials. James covers it great. He's James chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our message today. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask again that we would, you know, not only enjoy perhaps this historical uh, context of our passages in Scripture uh, where you have us as a church right now, 
not only be able to see through your great wisdom and power how things have come to pass and how things will transpire in the future, Lord, as you empower us with the knowledge that can only come from you. You are the revealer of secrets. You are the revealer of truth. And all of that, Lord, we ask that we would be humble before you and that we would know where we stand when when it comes time to stand. When it comes time to take a stand for our faith, that we would already be settled on the issue and that we wouldn't waver and that we wouldn't be tossed to and fro like the wind. Lord, and if we haven't, if we haven't done that, if we're, if we're struggling in our faith and we, we sense that we're not on solid ground with you where we stand, maybe we don't even, uh, somebody hearing my voice, maybe they don't even know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe they haven't placed their entire life and all their, all their possessions and everything that they have and given them back to God and realized that they all came from him to begin with. Maybe they haven't surrendered their life unto you for forgiveness of sins, having repented of the fallen nature that they have been born with, knowing that they've committed sins against you, knowing that they've lied and they've stolen, they've used your name in vain, and that you will hold them guilty for that. You will hold them in judgment for that. Maybe there's people that hear this voice, hear my voice through the internet or here today who don't know you as Lord and Savior. And yet we've read the type of world that has existed and will exist. And Lord, we just ask that you would simply grant us your wisdom once again. Guide us. Speak to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to get to the bottom of where we stand with you. Where we're going after we leave this world. We know that it's a short, this is a short time this side of heaven. And then we, everyone will step into eternity. So Lord, help us once again to settle the issue before you. Go before us now, we pray in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand. We're going to recite our scripture, our closing scripture. And then we're going to have a song, a closing song. Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. Let's read it together. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest by the prophetic scriptures, made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. From wherever you've been Come broken hearted Let a rescue begin Come find your mercy Oh sinner come kneel Earth has no sorrow That heaven can't heal So lay down your burdens Lay down your shame your face Oh wanderer come home You're not too far So lay down your hurt Lay down your heart Come as you are Hopeful or hopeless And all those who strayed Come sit at the table Come taste 
grace to grace there's rest for the weary rest that endures earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure so lay down your burdens lay down your shame your face oh wanderer come home you're not too far so lay down your hurt lay down your heart come as you are come as you are the morning oh sinner be still earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal so lay down your burdens lay down your shame bless and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. God bless. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.